We're going to be in Romans chapter 2. We're going to finish out the chapter, Lord willing, page 940 in the Bibles in front of you. Before we dive into this text, though, let's go to our king in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for first speaking to us and then in your generosity, having your word recorded in this book. And so might you stir in each and every one of us um, a hunger for it, a desire to understand it, and to bend our knees beneath it. God, what every single person in this room needs most without exception, whether um, they're, they're a new Christian, whether they're here, they've never been to a church before, whether they've they grew up in a church and they left for decades and now they're back or whether they've been following Christ for 73 years, God, and everything in between. What we all need most is to leave this time more impressed with what Jesus has done and more full of hope with what he promises to do. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you lift Christ high in this place that all of our hearts might be drawn after him? In Jesus' name, amen, amen. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? Romans chapter 2, starting at verse 17 into the first few verses of chapter 3. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law... And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? For while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Feel free to grab a seat. The word rely in verse 17 is a really, really important one to be able to understand what's going on in this text. It means to depend on, to, to rest one's hopes on, to find comfort in. And what were this group of people relying in? We see these incredible privileges 
and advantages. They're very good things that they rely on. We see this idea begin to be spoken about in, in Romans 3, verse 1. We'll look at this again next week, but I just wanted to touch base. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They have the Bible. And it says, to begin with, there's, there's a whole host of things that happen for for this group of people. And then you go up to verse 17 and we see a, a, a number of advantages. Call themselves a Jew. Uh, the, the word Jew comes from Judah. It was one of the early tribes of, of Israel and it means to, to praise or to praise God. They're saying we're, we're named by God. There's a privileged status. They have the law. Because of this, they know his will. They know what is excellent. They have a privileged knowledge. And then it goes on and says, and they boast in, in God or they, they praise and, 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 and worship God. There's this privileged relationship. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 says it like this in boasting of God. It says, thus says the Lord. It's actually commanded to us. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. There's all these advantages, and, and boasting in God actually wasn't the problem. Here is the, the lens in which we need to see these verses. Presumption was the problem. At this time, if you were Jewish, there was no separation between your ethnicity and your religion. They were all combined. If, if, you, were, if you were born into a Jewish family you would have grown up regularly experiencing the great festivals and the great feasts of God's people. Throughout the year, there was multiple times where there was these marked out occasions to remember the great historical acts of God in rescuing and ransoming and providing. You would have grown up from the earliest age of seeing this. If you were a male on the eighth day, you would have been circumcised. And we'll talk about this a little bit later, but it was a, a sign and a symbol of being marked out as belonging to, to, to God and as part of his, his people. You would have grown up Regularly hearing what's called the Shema, this, this, this statement that was said over and over again, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with your heart and your soul and your strength. I mean, from the earliest age, you would have heard that declared multiple times throughout the day. You would have, you would have had a Bible. You would have heard the Bible spoken of while you're at home. And when you're on the road, it would have been memorized. You would have been regularly apart. You, you would have practiced the Sabbath religiously from, from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. It would have been a day set apart for God. You would have grown up around the things of God. But the people Paul has in mind here are those that have grown up around the things of God, the people of God, named after the people of God, think they know God, but by their behavior are somehow showing that they're still far from God. If we look at verse 19 and following, they're a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness. They're instructor of the foolish. They're a teacher of children. And none of that is actually the problem. If you, if you know the path to take, and you should help other people take it. If you, if you have light, you should let that shine in darkness. If you are, are, are more mature, you should help the, the foolish and, 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 and the young to, to, to grow up into maturity. But here's where the issue begins to come in, and it's in verse 21. You then who teach others... Do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? And then it goes on into another, uh, other areas of rebellion to God. What Paul, the author of this letter, is saying is you preach, but you don't practice. Now, I'm going to say this. 
early on, this is true of everyone. Every single person in this room without fail, you're Christian, non-Christian, however you see yourself, we all preach but don't practice. None of us lives up perfectly and flawlessly to the aspirations or the truths that we hold out and say, this is what's good and right. The bigger issue for this group of people is they don't know it. There's no awareness of this dissonance between what they say and what they do. The word rely, again, is so important. To make themselves acceptable before God, they are relying on the wrong things, namely their religious performance. And they are sure, another word, verse 19, they are sure that their lives are right before God and do not merit his judgment. So if, you, if we zoomed back, we won't go to it, but the very first part of chapter two is Paul begins this conversation with this group of people. He says, you condemn other people, you judge other people, but don't you know that you're doing the same things? And God's judgment falls on you. They don't think they deserve his judgment, but as verse 29 says here at the end, they actually think they deserve his praise. Let me try to draw a parallel for, for us from this text, which might feel like a uh, shocking claim. I'll try to, try to justify it here as we go. There is a very real danger in growing up Christian. Now, there are wonderful advantages. and It's an incredible privilege. But there are some very real dangers of growing up around the things of God, being steeped around the things of God. What's being said in verse 17 and following about the advantages and privileges that the Jews had can very much be said about anyone that grows up around Christianity. You call yourself a Christian. You have the Bible. You spend a lot of your life boasting and and praising God. But I need us all to to see the possibility of self-deception that's loaded into these verses. It really gets turned up in verses 25 through 29, this, this extended treatment of circumcision that you can be so confident and yet so wrong at the same time. Maybe I'd rephrase the end like this, for no one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly. Let me give you an unnerving text, and I'll tell you on the front, we will get to a place of great assurance and great hope and great grace, but we got to do some heavy lifting to get there. Let me give you a very unnerving text, Matthew 7, through 23. These are the words of Christ. On that day, when Jesus comes back is what he's talking about. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. That's jarring. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What those verses are saying is you can do so much in the name of the Lord and still not really know the Lord. Charles Wesley was a a missionary, a, a preacher, a prolific hymn writer. And he kept a journal. His own journal tells us the exact day of his conversion. Sunday, May 21st, 1738. Quoting Wesley, he says, I have found myself at peace with God and rejoiced in the hope of the love of Christ. And then we get to hear more of this conversion experience because Tuesday, I believe it was about two days later, he began to write a hymn, which is the articulation of what he experienced in his conversion. It's one of my favorite hymns. It's the hymn, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? 
And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eyes diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Those are the lyrics of a converted heart that says, oh, I can't believe Jesus went to the cross in my place that he bled, in my place that he took the judgment I deserved, in my place, and, and I, was, I was in darkness, I was in a, in a cell, and I couldn't see the truth, and then the Spirit came and made me see, and all of a sudden, the, the cell was flooded with light, and the shackles came off, and I am free. It's an incredible declaration of what he came to understand. Those lyrics of a converted heart. Here's here's what's interesting about May 21st, 1738 and Wesley's conversion. He'd already been a missionary in America for two years. Think about the order of that. He went from England to, to Georgia to tell people about Jesus. Prior to becoming a missionary, he had been formally trained as a clergyman in the church of England. Wesley left England as a lost man to go help other lost men and women meet Christ. I have a friend who's a pastor in Texas, and I'm sure every place in the South lays claim to this. You know, you talk about the Bible Belt, and they all say they're the buckle of the Bible Belt. My friend would say where he ministers is the buckle of the Bible Belt, and he says it's actually really, really difficult. And, and we kind of, we, we, we basically try to argue whose job is harder, you know, and, and, and of course it's harder here. It's more beautiful, but, but, you know, people that are far from God, they don't care about God, they reject God. He's like, you don't understand. Trying to talk to people that have grown up in the church, they have had just enough Jesus to be totally inoculated to him. They think they're right with God because they grew up in a Christian home and they had Bibles and they did a wanna and they, uh, you go through the list of very, very good things. But they've had just enough Jesus to be totally immune to him. Growing up sort of moral-ish, and sort of Christian can be a very major danger. My kids have grown up in a Christian home. From the moment they were conceived or we first heard of them, we, we prayed for them. I, I would lean over my wife as our babies were being knit together and I would, I would pray scriptures and I would sing songs, pray for them to come to have faith in Christ. The, the moment they were born or the first time we got to, to hold them, the first thing they heard I whispered down in their ear, I said, Jesus is Lord and Savior and there is no one else. Every single one of them, I had passages already picked and, and memorized that I might lay my hands on them and read scripture over them and dedicate them to the Lord. They've all been de dedicated. My wife and I, we're, we're not sure on that. I think they've all been dedicated. We dedicated them. Whether we did it here on Sunday or not, we did it. Okay. <laughs> I tried to find a picture. I could only find it for two. But... <laughs> You know, I just got to get it right. Okay. But they've all been dedicated to the Lord for sure, for his purposes and his glory. They, they grew up and they had, they had Bibles. I don't remember the first Bible they got, but I remember the, one of the first Bibles that they got that we really loved, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Anyone? 
ridiculous. Everyone should read it. It will unlock the Bible for you. It's phenomenal. Jesus Storybook Bible. And then we got them Little Pilgrim's Progress and we'd sit around as a family and we'd read these stories together. And then C.S. Lewis and, and, and there was constantly hymns and worship music playing in our house. Very early age, we, there was a group called Seeds and they would do like Seeds of Faith, Seeds of Worship. It was these great songs to memorize the Bible. I mean, we were indoctrinating them so early. We planted a church and my wife would hold Owen, um, who was a, a year old at that time, or like eight months old. She'd be like in the baby Bjorn, like a little attached alien, right? And she would, she would organize the, the church trailer for set up and tear down. I mean, he was around the things of God all the time. There were multiple services. If you drove around in our minivan, you would hear dad regularly, just out of the blue, say, who's your passion? And all the little voices, Jesus. They've barely missed a Sunday. They've been in gospel communities. And I've dropped so many balls as a, as a dad and leading family worship, particularly as my kids get older, but we st- I still try to get it in there. We still talk about Christ. Still make attempts at it. They've all been baptized. They've professed faith and on and in. And here's what I want you to hear. This, is, this gets real tricky because those are all wonderful, wonderful things. Incredible privileges. Incredible advantages to get the things of God regularly before them. I love the local church. I love this church. You are a phenomenal church. All of those things are are things Christians should do, and all of those things are wonderful means of grace that God gives to people. But none of them are the things that we can rely on to say that we're Christians. They're not the things that make us Christians. They're They're not the root. They're often the fruit, but they're they're not the cornerstone. Clue in again on the word rely. One of the best things this text does for everyone in the room, Christian or non-Christian, is it clarifies what will never save anyone. Religion will never save anyone. Our efforts to keep rules will never save us. Our church attendance will never save us. Bible memorization will never save us. Being a member of a church will not save us. Being baptized, serving, giving, and a million other very good things do not save us. They are not the things in which we are to rely. They're important, and we're going to come back to this. Uh, The word for what's happening in verses 21 and following, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You're not practicing what you preach. The word is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is this gap between who we display we are and who we really are. And I want to be clear, there's always a gap. But it's also true that the amazing grace that saves Christians is also grace that changes a Christian. That's a big part of what's being said in verses 25 through 29. You know, one of the things that's often said is, you know what, the only difference between a Christian and non-Christian is that Jesus forgives, you know, that a Christian is forgiven. And that is so good. And it's so true, but it's not complete. Christians are not just saved by Christ, but, but we're changed to become more like Christ. And in this whole sermon, I'm gonna do the, I'm gonna, I feel like I'm walking a knife edge, but I wanna be faithful to the text. That you're saved by Christ, but you're also changed. There's something that, as I said, a Christian is not one who is one merely outwardly. There's something that's happened down in, in the heart that creates a, a change. Greg Morrison, his article, Sinner, Saints, or Hypocrites, says, Christians should be distinct from the world and how we live. Yes, should is different than always are. 
We all have cause to sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Sanctification, looking more like Christ, can be painfully slow. What we speak of is not perfection, but a new power, a new purpose, and a new direction. But even when the Christian stumbles, as we all do this side of glory, we are not content to make peace with belittling God. We do not settle at home in our sin. Or as verses 28 through 29 say, this isn't just an external thing. It's internal. It's a matter of the heart by the Spirit. We're going to look more at that in a minute, but I just want to, I want to zero in on the stakes of getting this wrong and some terrible consequences of religious hypocrisy. When the church fails to live up to its call to be the church or as Christians, or when we bear the name of Christ and we do not represent our Christ very well. And we see two interrelated consequences to religious hypocrisy in this text over in in, in verse uh, 24. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That word blaspheme can mean to dishonor, to defame. And what's happening here, these interrelated things, is that people that are, that are bearing a name are bringing dishonor to God, and it's coming out of the very people that are far from God that need to honor that name. It's driving those that are far from God farther from God as they look at the church condemning the sins of the world, but sometimes being way too comfortable with the sins that are in our hearts. And so Paul is calling them out. U.S. church affiliation. Let me give you a stat on U.S. church affiliation. So Gallup began a poll back in uh, 1937. Uh, uh, Some sort of religious affiliation. This is not just Christian church, but religious affiliation. This wasn't always people that showed up and and participated, but they would self-select to say, this is where I identify. In 1937, it was 73%. It remained approximately 70% for the next six decades. In 2000, it was 70%. And then if you look at the, the chart, it actually started dropping very quickly. In 2020, for the first time since Gallup began tracking, it dropped below 50%. It's a huge drop-off in 20 years. And there's all sorts of theologians and thought leaders and social scientists and anthropologists. They're all trying to figure out why. And there's a variety of reasons, I'm sure. But one of the big ones that's often cited is this, hypocrisy. Russell Moore, in an article that then became a book called Losing Our Religion, says this. He says, we now see young evangelicals walking away from evangelicalism, not because they do not believe what the church teaches, but because they believe the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. The pressing issue in this secularization is not scientism and hedonism, but disillusionment and cynicism. My kids that grew up, in the church and grew up around Christians. They they get to see, does God make a difference? Does it actually change the, the actions and behaviors of the people that say he rose from the dead to give us new life? He's given us righteous rules to follow. Like, do they see it? You know, think about my, my kids or my wife. The thing I worry about most is that they would see on stage Rob and at home Rob. And the gap between would be so big. And that when they listened to me preach, they would sit there and roll their eyes and think to themselves, oh, if you only knew. That's frightening. And it's true for all of us. As we bear the name of Christ, oh, I want to perfectly know. But, but how wide is that gap? But do we even care about that gap? If not, we, the, Paul is 
prompting us. I mean, all these questions, this way of interacting, what he's doing is he's, he's calling us to a moment of self-reflection. All right, before we move into verses 25 through 29, which will be encouraging, let me give you a bit more encouragement. Um, our behavior can defame God, but the inverse is true as well. Like we don't just get it wrong, we can also get it right. Um, we see a nod to that in verse 29. His praise is f- from God. God is approving and affirming. The charge of hypocrisy in the church is valid, but, but it can also be overblown. Um, I'll give you just one example. We can give you a billion of these, and this relates to you, this church that I really, truly love. Um, my daughter, Emma, my oldest kid, is probably six months ago, something like that. In the last year, uh, she was a sophomore. She's a junior in college now, but she was a sophomore, and out of the blue, she sent me what was one of the most honoring, encouraging texts um, I've ever gotten. She just out of the blue said, Daddy, I just want you to know, it was such a privilege to grow up in our church. You don't think that's amazing? You're like, yeah, whatever. That's incredible. That's stunning. Self-selected. Redeemer was so amazing. And you know why she said it? Because of you. She got a front row seat. And that's what, so I said, Emma, that's incredible. And we started interacting. It's because she said, I'd had so many spiritual aunts and uncles that I knew loved me and loved Jesus. I had so, and she knew you're not perfect. I complain about you sometimes at home. But, <laughs> <laughs> not really. Not tonight, kids, at least. Um, (laughs) But she sees that you're incredible. So it's like we can get it wrong and blaspheme God. We can get it right and bring glory to him. So be encouraged by that. Let me give you a quick recap, though. Just because you self-identify as belonging to God as his people, and just because you have a Bible, and just because you boast that he is your God, and just because you are sure that you are a qualified guide, you are a bright light, you are a good instructor and teacher, doesn't mean you are. And now here in verse 25, Paul is adding circumcision to the list of things that we cannot rely on to save us. Circumcision was one of the most central signs of God's people at this time to mark out that they did belong to God. It was this known as a covenant sign. A covenant is a binding promise, this this unbreakable commitment between God and us. We, We first see it come up in Genesis, first book of your Bibles in chapter 17. This is God's promise to uh, a man named Abraham that became what's known as the father of many nations. It, that we, we come out of Abraham. He says, your offspring is going to be as plentiful as the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea of people that will, will be about me. So God says this to Abraham. He says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to do what? To be, your, to be, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And he says, and the way you're going to symbolize this is through circumcision, that you're, you're going to take every male that's part of this community, whether they were born in your house or they've chosen to be with you, to, you're going to say, if you want to be with God, like we mark you out in this way. And it's interesting because the word covenant can also mean to cut. And so there is a physical cutting that takes place as a visual marker to point to a spiritual reality. And then he gives this warning, and just a few verses later, he says, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. It's a really big deal. Circumcision was the God-ordained sign and seal of his promise with his people. And as verse 25 says, it has value if... Physical circumcision is not enough. That's what these verses in 25 and following are saying. Because when we disobey the law, it's like it becomes an uncircumcision. Those that weren't circ- I never thought I'd do a sermon where I said that word so many times. Um, those who are uncircumcised, if they 
they obey the law becomes a sort of circumcision. Let's consider a parallel. Baptism. Water baptism. It's a sign and it's a symbol of of something. Soon on Easter, we will get, by God's grace, the, the joy of baptizing. If you've never been baptized, this is why you get baptized. You're saying, Christ is it. Christ is my Savior. And when you get baptized and you go into the water, you're identifying that Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. He's done what I can't do. He took judgment for me. And so that judgment resulted in the wrath of God being poured out. And then he goes into a tomb and he's buried. And that's what happens when you get baptized. You go under the water. It's a symbol of like, I'm buried. And, and the, the idea of the water, it's the, this cleansing picture of what Christ and his sacrifice has done. And then you come up out of the water is, is symbolically a new creation that you've been washed in the work of Christ. And just as Jesus got up out of the tomb, you get up out of the water to live as, as, as people that are new to Christ and, and new lives. But it's not what saves us. It points to the one who saves us. We do not rely on our baptisms as the ground of our salvation. How do I know I'm a Christian? Well, I got baptized. Oh, a Christian should get baptized. But it's not the thing we point to any more than we would church membership or Bible or prayer or serving. All very, very, very good things. It's not what we lean on. It's not what we rely on. So what do we rely on? This text does say practice what you preach, that obedience does matter. You know, is Paul basically saying in this, the author of this letter, is he basically saying like, really the problem is you're just not doing it enough. You're not obeying enough. You need to practice more what you preach. That would be the thing you could rely on. One of the major challenges in going through Romans, and really any book of the Bible, but that's so loaded and so dense, it could take so long to go through it, is that we forget what's come before and what's coming after. So let me just zoom back a couple of chapters and just give you a brief overview so that we can answer what is a really important question. What do we rely on to be right with God? Um, from chapters 1 through 3, starting at about verse 18 of chapter 1, going to verse 20 of, 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 of chapter 3, the whole thing is basically this. You're sinners. <laughs> Sin is is more sinful than you know. God is more holy than you can imagine. Every single person without exception has fallen short of the glory of God. We cannot earn or, or perform our way to be right with God. That's this extended treatment. This extended treatment. There's a back and forth between Gentiles and Jews, Gentiles or non-Jews, and they have different sins and different tendencies, but they're all an offense to God. But on, so let me, let me give you the verses. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then in my notes it says dot, 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 because that's basically what happens for the next number of verses. And then 320, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Just saying we are utterly lost, and he is perfectly holy. But here's what's beautiful, is on either side of those verses, what bookends them is this, grace and faith. It's all wrapped in trust in Christ. 1, 16 through 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written. Maybe you can help me finish this one. The righteous shall live by, the righteous shall live by faith. We don't don't rely on 
our upbringing. We don't rely on our religious pedigree. We don't rely, we, we just, it's, they're good. I want you to hear that. I praise God that my kids grew up in a home where Jesus was loud. But we don't rely on our Bible reading, our church membership, our giving records. Or what Romans 3.20 says, or I, I don't want to go back to sin. We'll get to grace and faith now. Romans 3.23 and 24, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified to be declared right before God by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I didn't think about this in the first service, um, so we'll see how this goes. I'm going to give you the, uh, the editor's cut here. Um, Paul, the one writing this, knows what it's like to rely on the wrong things. If you go to Philippians chapter 3, and if the heartbeat behind this, this is not an anti-Semitic text. This is Paul trying to call his fellow brothers. Paul himself was a Jew. He's trying to call them into to right understanding of who God really is and what God has done in Christ. Verse 3, Philippians uh, chapter 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ and Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see, I'm not going to rely on all these things that we, all these good things. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he, then he goes through. This is, he's giving you his, his resume before Christ. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, means flawless, basically, trying to be. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's saying, I got it better than anyone else. But whatever gain I had, I counted it loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he just continues to go on. He's trying to press the people in first century Rome, he's trying to press us to say, oh, it is a privilege to grow up around the things of Christ. But we can still miss Christ because we keep looking at the wrong things. All right, but still, isn't this text saying that those who are truly gods will practice what they preach? And the short answer is yes. Perfectly? No. Genuinely? Yes. But again, that is not what saves us. Paul is doing all of that in this text. The, the, the way we live, I said it earlier, it is the fruit, not the root of our salvation. That what comes out, this attempt to practice what we preach comes out of trusting in Christ. Verses 28 through 29 are not original with Paul. This thought in, in this text is I'm looking at Philippians. I got to get back to Romans. Are not original with Paul. He, he says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. There's something deeper to this than just kind of surface level affiliation. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. What I want to do is look at two passages that put this together to give you some background. This idea of it's a matter of the heart. It's something deep inside and it's done by the Spirit. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. 
That's not a new idea. This came a few books after the one we read from, from Genesis. That this idea that the outward sign was always supposed to be some sort of signpost or symbol to what happened inside. That we might do what? To love the Lord our God. That God changes us. That we might live for him. And it's by the Spirit, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. This is what's called a new covenant promise. That means this promise that God has brought in Christ. This is what Jesus came to do. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. Oh, as we've broken the law, he'll wash us. From all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is saying it's not, it's not us obeying the rules is what gave us the new heart. It's if we have a new heart, we're gonna stumble as we obey the rules. We need God to give us a new heart. My friend Tony Morita, preaching from this text, talks about the, the first heart transplant. It was performed by Dr. Christian Bernard. And after they did the first one, it was successful. They, he performed another one. The, the second patient to have the surgery done was a guy named Philip Blayberg. And after the surgery and after the recovery, he asked the doctor, he said, can I hold my old heart? And the doctor's like, hmm, okay. And so, you know, I think there's probably different medical things now. You can't do this. But he just opens up a cupboard and in a, in a jar is his heart. And so he pulls the heart out and he brings it over to, to, to Philip Blayberg. And, and he's standing there and he's, he's looking at this jar with his old heart. He's kind of going, huh. So this is the thing that was causing all that trouble. This old heart. And he hands it back to the doctor and he leaves and he left his old heart behind forever. That's what God does for every Christian in the gospel. As he performs, he performs a, a, a spiritual heart transplant. This old heart that just gives us so much trouble. As he takes it out and he, he gives us a new heart. And the idea there is we leave the old heart. We, know, we don't go back to it. We're to practice what we preach. And if we're Christians, there'll always be a gap between what we want and what we are. There is genuine obedience. But I, got, I need us to consider again the word rely. What do we rely on? You heard it in Paul out of Philippians 3. You hear it in this church every single Sunday. The answer is always Jesus. It's faith in Jesus. It's the danger of growing up Christian is that you might miss Christ. It's not that our baptisms and our church attendance and our Bible study and continuity between what we say and we, we do and giving and serving and pursuing purity and all these things are unimportant. It's just not what we rely on. My kids got to grow up. I, I pray they've grown up in a home. I know they've grown up in a church that's made much of Jesus. And that's the point is to get to Jesus. When Jesus was crucified on the, the, the cross, he was crucified between two thieves. So he, there's three cross and he was in the middle and on the, the cross, one of the people that was crucified next to him, this thief shifted from cursing Christ to actually asking him something. He said, Jesus, when you come again, when, you, when your kingdom, would you, would you remember me? 
And the, the, Christ looks at him and says, today you will be in paradise with me. Alistair Begg tells a wonderful embellishment of this story about what happened when the thief died. It really brings home what we rely on. He sets it up like this. He says, without the preaching of the cross, without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. Now think about the thief. He's first cussing Christ out. He's on the cross because he was a thief. He'd never been to a Bible study, never been baptized, knew nothing about church membership, hadn't ever given a dime, and yet he made it to paradise. And then Alistair, he goes on, and, he, and now, this is not real, okay? So, I, you, like, what he says is not real, um, but he says, you know, imagine what it's like, the, the moment the thief died is now he's, he's up in heaven, and he's standing at the pearly gates, and he's waiting to get in, and, and an angel comes to him, and now he kind of enacts this, this interaction between them. It's an angel, he comes, and he just looks him up and down. What are you doing here? Thief looks up at him. Well, I don't know. <laughs> what do you mean you don't know? Because well, I don't know. Angel's getting flustered. So he's like, I'm going to go get my supervisor. So he goes and this is, again, this is not real. And he, so he gets the supervisor and the angel and now the angel supervisor, which is maybe, let's say the archangel. So the archangel is there and he comes over, looks him up and down again. And he says, um, so we got to, a few questions for you. First of all, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? Yeah, it's like, I've never heard of that in my life. All right, all right. What is your view on the inerrancy of Scripture? He's just quiet. He's just staring. This is, you know, he's like, what? All right, well, can you at least tell me what church you got baptized in? He just keeps staring. Eventually, in frustration, the angel just looks at him and says, on what basis are you here? Thief simply looks up at him and says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's always the answer. The man on the middle cross said I could come. That's why I'm here. Goodness, if you grew up in the church, don't miss Christ. If you grew up around the things of God, do not miss Christ. If you were here for the first Sunday of your life, do not miss Christ. Oh, reading the Bible, knowing the Bible, serving, caring about the community, living changed lives, oh, it matters. But don't miss Christ. It's always just the man on the middle cross. It's what it's always about. We don't trust our upbringing. We don't trust our performance. We don't trust our church attendance or Bible knowledge. That only ends in two ways, prideful, self-deluded arrogance, or when we're finally honest about how much we break the law, personal despair. We rely on Jesus. Christians are not self-confident. They're Christ-dependent, cross-reliant, Christ-centered, Christ-exalted. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, lead us to Christ. Lead us to him for the billionth time. Lead us to him for the first time. Thank you for the privilege for all of those here who got to grow up around the things of Christ. Thank you that in, 
thank you that you make Jesus loud and that you would draw them to you. If, if, if they realize they've never confessed their need, their, their, their sin, their, their, the, the reality of judgment that's on them, even if they've been baptized, even if they've taken communion, even if they've served, even if they're working for a church staff, God, whatever role, would we confess it today? God, thank you for the clarity and the grace of what will never save us, but the one who can save anyone. The man on the middle cross says we can come. What more do we need? In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.